Well, good morning and welcome again to King's Cross. It's good to see you all uh, this morning. I'm excited to be here. Also excited this morning to start a new sermon series in the book of Esther. Uh, Old Testament book. It's about a third of the way through the Bible. It follows Ezra and Nehemiah and comes right before Job and Psalms, I think. Somebody can correct me if they had better Sunday school training than I did. Um, you can go ahead and be finding your place there. But before we, we dig in, I just want to say I'm so excited to preach this book because the more that I've read it, the more I've studied it in preparation, the more convinced I am that it is just a literary masterpiece. It is, it is funny. It is ironic. It is satirical. Uh, and yet it, it, it continues to reveal so much about who God is and who we are and how we're meant to live in the world. Before you um, begin studying any book of the Bible, it's good to ask a few sort of upfront introductory questions. Uh, so we'll ask those before we dig in. First, you always ask when you come to a book of the Bible, who wrote it? And in this case, we don't know who wrote it, uh, but we do know that it was a very skilled author. One, one commentator said that the book of Esther represents a literary high mark in the Old Testament. As you'll see, again, it's just masterfully composed. It was written to Jewish communities, both within Israel and beyond Israel, likely within a couple of generations of the events themselves. And so the, the, the book itself takes place in the early 5th century B.C. Uh, so I always have to check myself when I talk about B.C. dates because you remember we're counting down and not counting up. So it takes place in the 480s and 470s B.C., and it's likely that it was written and recorded in the late 5th century B.C., so 420s, 14s, something like that. The reason that scholars think that Actually, it used to be assumed that it was written much later, a few centuries later, but over the last couple of generations, as there's been more work done on the Hebrew language in this era, uh, scholars have come to agree that the Hebrew in Esther, that's the language it was written in, much more closely identifies with Hebrew in the 400s than in the 200s or the 100s BC, is what people originally thought. So it's written very close to the events themselves, and it's written to give an explanation of a Jewish holiday called Purim. Uh, Purim is a holiday that Jewish people still celebrate today, the giving of gifts and, and feasting and charity. Uh, but you may think as Christians, like, what, what does this have to do with us? We don't celebrate that holiday. I hope that the answer to that will unfold uh, in the weeks to come. It's important to note, though, that this is not just a dry history or a record of why this holiday is celebrated. It's not just a mere recollection of the facts. You could think of it as, as, as sort of a holiday origin story. So you, if you grew up in America, you grew up hearing about the first Thanksgiving when the pilgrims and the Native Americans celebrated the first Thanksgiving together. Okay, you can kind of think of this like that, except without the colonialism and all of the fictional elements of that story. This is actually true, uh, but it is a, a, a sort of dramatized history. So it's, it's not just a mere record keeping. It's... it's it's really a, a masterpiece of this author who's written it in such a way that it would be memorable and that it would be enjoyed. So one commentator said, the, the book of Esther is simply meant to be enjoyed. Where are we in world history? Uh, when I, was, I went to a Christian school growing up, my eighth grade Bible teacher taught us an acronym, ABPGR, which is all the great empires in, uh, in, in history around this time. So starting with the Assyrians, going all the way through the Romans. We're in the middle, we're in the P, the, the Persian Empire in this story. Um, the king, Ahasuerus, is his name in Esther. He's known more widely by his Greek name, Xerxes. Uh, he was the most 
powerful king of the most powerful kingdom at this point in human history. His father, Darius, who's mentioned in uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel, left him immense wealth. And by the time he comes to reign, again, this is the most powerful empire in known world history, and he's the most powerful leader in the history of that empire. So he is arguably the most powerful, wealthiest man ever at this point. Nonetheless, the first two years of his reign were not easy. There were a lot of people who did not want him to come to the throne. And so he spent the first two years of his reign putting down all these uprisings and rebellions in the kingdom. And that's going to be very important for this morning's text because we read that these events took place in the third year of his reign after he has put down all of these rebellions. Following uh, what happens here in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth years of his reign, he goes and tries to add to the empire by attacking this upstart nation called Greece. And it's not successful. Uh, he comes home, and, and histories outside of the Bible say that he came home after those losses looking for comfort among his harem, to whom would have belonged Queen Esther. So that's where we are in world history. Where are we in biblical history? If you can stretch your minds back to near the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important stories to remember anytime you're reading anything in the Bible is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God says, I'm going to fix everything that's gone wrong in the world, and I'm going to do it through your family, Abraham. So he promises, I'm going to give you abundant offspring. I'm going to give them a land that's going to be their own. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. And through them is going to come somebody who's going to bless all the nations of the world. And so the Old Testament is really just a, a sort of chronology recording God's faithfulness to those promises to Abraham. We see in the book of uh, Joshua that God's people do come into the land that God promised them. But once they get there, life in the land spirals downhill immediately. The entire book of Judges is just this cycle of God's people doing really stupid things, worshiping other gods, practicing horrible injustice, reaping the consequences of that, crying out to God for deliverance, him raising up a deliverer, saving them, and then them doing the exact same thing again. And after a while, they go to God and they say, God, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want kings like the nations have kings. And God literally tells them, if, I, I will do this for you, but if I do, it's going to go really badly. Here's what's going to happen. And they say, we don't care. We want one anyway. And so he says, okay, you can have kings. And exactly what God says would happen happens. With a few notable exceptions, the kings are terrible, and they spiral Israel further into injustice and idolatry. And things get so bad that eventually says, God says, you remember the, the land that I promised to Abraham, the, the land that you're living in? I'm going to take you out of the land. You're going to be exiled. And so we know this as, as the Babylonian exile. So that's the, the B in that acronym. Right before the Persian Empire is the Babylonian Empire. Babel, Babylon exiles Israel. And after Babylon gives way to Persia, a king arises who's much more gracious, and he says, you can go back to your land now. But for various reasons, many Jewish people did not immediately go back to the land. Many of them began to live in these sort of consolidated immigrant communities in various places throughout the Persian Empire. And one of those communities lived in the Persian capital of Susa, which is exactly the community that we pick up with as we begin today. Esther chapter 1, I'll read uh, the entire chapter. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. 
He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. And the king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mamukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Mamukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she didn't come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Mamukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Esther opens with this 180-day feast, an absolute rager, this celebration about after he has put down his enemies. Uh, it's meant to do a few things. It's meant to celebrate his victories. It's meant to reward those who were on the right side. It's meant to, to sort of taunt those who were on the wrong side. And it's meant to send a warning to anybody who might get any ideas about any future rebellions. Verse 4 tells us that the purpose of this, this feast was to display the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness. And as if 180 days were not enough, at the end of the 180 days, he decides to throw a week-long banquet to sort of consummate 
the celebration. And you just have to notice as you read this, all the details about the decorations and the adornments. The point that the author is making is clear. This is elaborate. This is extravagant. And verse 8 tells us there are no restrictions. Everybody can have as much as they want. In fact, everybody must drink as much as they want. As I was reading this week all the details, I was reminded of uh, one of the great American novels, The Great Gatsby. In chapter 3, talks about these elaborate parties that, that Jay Gatsby would throw. The narrator says, There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whispering and the champagne and the stars. He talks about his, how his Rolls-Royce Rolls would become a, a bus that would travel back and forth from New York all day long from 9 a.m. until well after midnight. He talks about all the oranges and the lemons that would come in crates to his house every week and at the end of the week would be piled in a pulpless pyramid behind the back door. He says, uh, this part made me laugh, in the, in the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up and stocked with gins and liquors and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. And of course, he says on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, repairing the ravages of the night before. Just like F. Scott Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby, the author here spares no verbal expense to display the reality that the king spared no expense to display his power. And yet, on the last day of the party, the king was drunk. David Firth, commentator on Esther, says, the king seems to spend much of the book working on the theory that the best way to avoid a hangover is to stay drunk. And indeed, he does that. Uh, the, the text says that he was feeling good from the wine, or your translation might say he was merry with wine. This is a phrase that's used a couple times in the Old Testament. And one of the genius things about Esther is it doesn't quote other passages of Scripture, but it's full of allusions to other passages of Scripture. And the two times that the Old Testament uses the phrase merry with wine or feeling good with wine, it's an example of a person who's about to make a really foolish decision that ends in a disaster for him. Another allusion here, I think, is Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. It says, It's not good for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Otherwise, he will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert justice for all the oppressed. Uh, Proverbs isn't saying that alcohol is bad. In fact, the Bible in many places blesses alcohol as a, a gift from the Lord when, when used properly. But the point that it's making is when, when people in positions of authority misuse alcohol, who suffers? The people who they lead suffer. And again, just as an aside, this is not a point of this morning's sermon, but when leaders and rulers and those in government lack restraint and character and dignity, the people who they lead suffer. And so here, the, the drunken king makes this repulsive request, verse 11. I think you can imagine what's likely being asked. The author spares us some details. I don't think he's just asking the king to come and, or the queen to come and stand before the people for a second so they can see how beautiful she is. I think he's asking her to do more than that. And verse 12, to her credit, she refuses, and it completely undoes the king. He becomes furious, and it says his anger burned within him. And now, look at the parody of this powerful king who is powerful enough to conquer all these rebellions and uprisings and to have a 180-day feast with everything at their fingertips to celebrate his power, but he isn't even powerful enough to make his wife, 
Who would have been his property in this context? Obey a single command. The powerful king is utterly powerless. Again, David Firth says, for all the grandness of his public presentation, the king cannot affect what matters most. He cannot ensure that everyone does what he wants. And the balloon of his prestige, which has been so carefully established, is popped by a woman who will not come to his party. His facade of power is shown for the hollow thing that it is. Her refusal hints at her own dignity, but it is a crushing blow to the king. How does the king, in his anger and self-pity, respond? Verses 13 and following tells us. He calls together his boys. Um, Again, interesting. This is not something that I would have picked up on, but the commentaries that I've read on Esther make the point uh, that it's very unusual for literature of this period to include so many names of secondary characters who don't matter. Uh, But these do two things. One, they're genuine Persian names from that era, which again testifies to the the believableness of this story. But it seems like in, in almost every place, all the names have like a minor, what linguists would call a minor corruption it's like one letter's wrong or, or a couple letters are wrong. And, and scholars think that maybe the author of Esther was doing this to sort of mock the, the facade of Persian power and significance. Like they've got, they've got all this stuff together and all this powerful empire, but he sort of like makes fun of their names. And that's a way of like subverting the supposed power of Persia. And here, the uh, wise men that the king consults, he asks them, what, should, what is law and justice? What does law and order say that I should do? With my wife. And notice, they don't even refer to the law in their response. Rather, they catastrophize and they turn a domestic dispute into an empire wide emergency. And the only way forward, they insist, and the king agrees, is to issue an empire wide decree announcing one, that Vashti is banished from the palace, and two, that all men must be masters or lords of their own home. Now, One person I read made the point that if you're an irony-deficient reader, you need to be cured of that before reading Esther. Notice the irony here, two two beautiful ironies. One, they're worried that all the women in the kingdom are going to hear what the queen has done. Well, there's no better way to ensure that all the women in the kingdom hear about it than issuing a decree that goes to every woman in the kingdom telling them what has happened. And two, they're worried about some sort of feminist revolt coming, Well, there's no better way to inspire that revolt than by making a martyr out of the queen. And yet, that's exactly what they do. Now, I think it's clear that the satire, the irony here, is bringing a stinging critique against something, right, about the king. What is being critiqued here by the author? To be clear, it is not the biblical vision of what we call complementarity in marriage, this idea that, that men and women are created equal and both fully in the image of God with full dignity and worth and value and yet are different in some really important ways that make them like two pieces of a puzzle coming together, completing one another, that's not what is being critiqued. Rather, what's being critiqued is an abusive patriarchy that teaches men to view women as objects who exist for their pleasure. Now, people will tell you that the Bible like, supports the patriarchy, and the, the Bible is sort of a tool for oppressors. But guys, Esther was critiquing it 2,500 years ago. I'd say that's, that's pretty ahead of the times. And so, remember Proverbs 31, the drunken king, here, unable to reign in his desires, will now make an entire empire of women pay 
because of one perceived slight. Why? Because the king is weak. The king may be powerful, but at the same time, he's powerless. You know that that strong, confident leaders don't overreact like this, right? He's weak. He feels threatened. Joyce Baldwin, in her commentary, says, The great king who ruled the known world and enjoyed unlimited resources and prestige was nevertheless vulnerable. Note the contrast between the king at the beginning of the chapter, when he's the world's greatest monarch, rich and powerful, and that same king by the end of the chapter, attempting to maintain dignity despite the defiance of his wife. Now, the king is not just a drunken buffoon who's led around by his hurt feelings. I think the king is also a mirror into the human heart. I think the king is a mirror into the human heart. He has every imaginable good at his fingertips. He can have whatever he wants, and yet he lacks one thing, and it absolutely devastates him and crushes him. Why? Because there's an idol sitting on the throne of his heart, and when it's taken away from him, it crushes him, and his only response is to crush everybody else to try to get it back. Right? There's an idol sitting on the throne of his heart, and when it's taken from him, it crushes him, and so he crushes everyone to try to get it back. Again, back to Gatsby, which I think is such a, a great illustration of this opening chapter. Jay Gatsby, if you know the story, has everything in the world. He has all the money, he has all the prestige, all the power, all the women, and yet there's one thing that he doesn't have. He doesn't have Daisy. And so he has to crush everybody in himself in the end to try to get her back. Augustine was right when he said that what we all want most is happiness. And he doesn't mean walking around with a little grin on your face. He means a deep, abiding, soul-level satisfaction and contentment and happiness. And we all believe that there's something out there that will give it to us. And for the king, that something was power and glory and the recognition of power and glory by other people. And when this was taken, it crushed him. And by the way, it's worth noting that it wasn't wasn't the queen that he so desperately needed. She just happened to be the object on that particular day that he thought was going to give him what he most longed for. We make the same mistake. We think that, that the problem is money or sex or romance or a job or school or work. In reality, those are those are just the objects that we're trying to use to fill up our deepest longings. And so for the king, it was this desire to appear powerful and glorious. But what is it for you? What's the the deep desire that you're trying to fill up? Some of you, maybe it's being right. Maybe you just always have to be right. And being wrong or being questioned crushes you. Like you, you and your spouse are out to dinner with another couple and you say something and your spouse corrects you in front of them. And what are you doing? You're like pulling out your phone to, to Google it to see who's right to try to justify yourself in the moment, right? Because you just can't stand to be wrong. Maybe it's being appreciated. Maybe you're the kind of person who's always serving behind the scenes. You're always trying to, to carry a lot of weight and do a lot of work, but secretly, like you really want to be noticed and thanked for what you're doing. And so after a while, after serving in secret for a while and nobody ever thanks you, it just crushes you. You're terrified of feeling dispensable and not being thanked. Maybe for some of you, it's being admired or being thought successful and being exposed as a fraud or failing at work or at school in some way just just devastates you. Maybe it's being unique and authentic 
And when you find out that like somebody else has been listening to that band for months, it's like you can't listen to them anymore, right? Maybe this is it for me. It's being capable and competent, being perceived as capable and competent and intelligent. And so being thought incompetent or ignorant just crushes you. Uh, you can ask my wife. Like, she, she can just kindly suggest that I'm changing a diaper in the wrong way, and it like crushes me. Not, now I am perceived as incompetent. I have a, a friend that I used to work with. Maybe, maybe lots of guys have this problem. He was describing it and sort of playing up the scene where he's like driving down the road, and his wife suggests that maybe he should have taken a different turn. And he's like, that's it. I'm pulling over. You can drive, and I'm never driving again. Right? This just utter overreaction because we're, our feelings are so hurt at the suggestion that we might be incompetent. Maybe it's having security or support. So you're, you're constantly fearful because things don't feel safe and secure in your life. Maybe it's peace and stability. And so anytime there's, there's conflict in your family, you're just anxious all the time or conflict with a roommate or a friend. It's something for everybody. And when it's threatened, when, when the things that we look to to meet these deep desires are threatened, it crushes us. What's the solution? Well, it, it's not stop looking for that deep soul-level happiness. In fact, you couldn't stop doing that if you tried. You were created to search for that, so you can't just stop looking for it. The solution, rather, is to turn to the one source that can actually give you what you long for. Augustine talks about in his, his book, Confessions, which is this sort of autobiographical prayer, one of the most important books in, in Western literature. I encourage you to read it. Um, he talks about in his 20s before he became a Christian, and he was looking to all these things for satisfaction and for, for happiness and for rest. And he comes to say the, the problem was, I had my back to the light and my face to the things that are illuminated. I had my back to the light and my face to the things that are illuminated. I was looking at all these good things, gifts from God, wonderful things, work, career, success, family, love, I was looking to them, but I had my back to the light, to God himself, to the giver of those good gifts. See, the problem is not with, with school or friends or family or relationship or whatever. These are good things, but the problem is they're not powerful to give us what we ask of them. And when we ask them to give us this deep satisfaction, we, we crush them, and it crushes us, and we crush other people. For me, again, my, my deep desire is to appear competent and intelligent. I just graduated with my PhD. I can't get a higher degree than the one that I just got. Do I feel less insecure now? No. Of course, I'm, I still feel like an imposter and a poser because that can't bear the weight of me feeling satisfied. One more time, Gatsby, one of the best quotes in the book. The narrator is, is talking about this very thing, and he says, there must have been some moments when Daisy tumbled short of his dreams. Not through her own fault, in other words, not because there was anything wrong with her, but because of the colossal vitality of his illusion about her. It had gone beyond her, beyond everything. He says, no amount of fire or freshness can challenge what a man will store up in his ghostly heart. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying our dreams for satisfaction, have such a colossal vitality, such a massive weight that nothing in the world can bear them up. Nothing in the world, no created thing, can stand under the weight of your pursuit of happiness. So again, what do we do? To return to Augustine's metaphor, we must 
turn our faces to the light itself rather than just the things that are illuminated. You have made us for yourself, he famously said, first page of confessions. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And what do we find as we, we turn away from all the created things that we're looking to, to fill us up, and we turn to God? What do we find? We find that all the other stuff gets thrown in too. C.S. Lewis said, you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. You aim for earth, you get neither. And so is the deep desire in your heart to be right? Well, first, admit that you're not. Admit that in and of yourself you are wrong all the time. But in Christ, by faith, you have been declared righteous. You've been declared right. You've been justified. You've been vindicated. You want to be indispensable and, and thanked for all the ways that you serve other people? Admit that you're not. Admit that you're replaceable in and of yourself. And yet in Christ, you have the infinite appreciation of the person who is the most important person in the world. You want to be successful. Just admit that in and of yourself, you're a complete failure. <laughs> you are. It's okay. But in Christ, you are admired by God anyway. And he is making you into a totally new kind of success. You want to be competent and smart, Taylor? Admit that you're incompetent and arrogant, and, and ignorant, rather, although also arrogant. Uh, wh why would Jesus have needed to die for me if I'm totally competent on my own? He would not have. And yet he did, which means I have the competence of Christ in my place. Do you want security? Do you want something to free you from your fears about the world? You can't find it. No amount of precaution, no home security system, no amount of healthy eating, diet, exercise can keep you from something tragic happening to you or your family. But you have eternal security in God through Christ. We could go on and on and on, but the point is when we, when we turn away from the pursuit of happiness in these things and instead turn to God, we find that, that we get the deep desires thrown in with him, and that changes how we live. Are you tired of being anxious all the time about relational discord in your family or among your friends? Are you tired of overreacting and blowing up at your spouse and saying things that you regret saying? Are you tired of being fearful all the time about what's going to happen to you? The point is, it's not going to go, right, go away right away. But if you remove these things from the throne of your heart and instead put God on the throne of your heart, you'll find that increasingly you're going to get everything you need from him. And it's not going to crush you when you lose these other things. Here's two precautions as we close. One, you can't go to God to get these desires met. It doesn't work like that. You have to go to God for God. And then when you do, you find that the desires are met. Tim Keller said, if you seek God as the non-negotiable good of your life, you will get happiness thrown in. If, however, you aim mainly at personal happiness, you'll get neither. In other words, you can't go to God as a shortcut for satisfaction or contentment. You have to go to God for God. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom and what? All these things will be added to you. Seek God and you'll get everything else that you need. But how do you do it? Here's the second precaution. You, you can't, like when I say, take these things off the throne of your heart and put God there instead. That's the most abstract, 
ambiguous thing. It doesn't even mean anything, right? It's too abstract. You can't, if I tell you you need to love God more than anything else, you can't just do that. You need something more tangible than that. And John chapter 1 tells us that in Jesus Christ, God became tangible. That in Jesus Christ, the abstract became concrete. God revealing himself to us as a human person. Jesus Christ is the tangible God. So you want to love God, look to Jesus. Listen to him. Look at the way he lived. Look at the way he loved. Consider his cross, his resurrection. Come to him. Imitate him. Obey him. And over time, it might not happen right away, but over time, you're going to find that you love God. And you're going to find that, that these things that you once needed in life, you can let go of and not be crushed and not crush other people when they're taken away from you. In the end, the king was not just powerless against Vashti, the queen. He was powerless before God. And over and above and beneath and behind all the the events of this story, chapter 1, the king's foolish request and his wife's dignified refusal and his overreaction and response, behind all of these things is another principle operating, and that is the principle of God's providence. God's secret Silent work, ordering events the way that he wants to. Do you know that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God? So the next eight weeks, we're going to be preaching through this book, and it doesn't even say anything about God explicitly. But he's on every page. And Jesus Christ is on every page. And the gospel is on every page. You see, God knew that his people were going to need a great delivery a great rescue. And he knew that for them to have that great rescue, somebody was going to have to be within reach of the king. Somebody was going to have to have access to the king. For somebody to have access to the king, somebody needed to be in the palace, namely Esther. And for somebody to be in the palace, there had to be room in the palace, which meant that somebody had to be removed. The king thinks he's controlling all of his situations in life, and yet it is God in his providence who's ordering these events. And that's exactly where this passage points us to Jesus. Because we, like the Jewish people in the book of Esther, are in need of a great rescue. And we have somebody in the palace, an, an intercessor named Jesus, with access to God. And he sacrificed himself on the cross, pleading for us, covering us with his blood. And when he is in the palace with the Father, he's saying, those people, you see them, they're the ones that you sent me to die for. And I did. And if we come to God through him, forgiven of our sins, and we get God, and we get all this other stuff thrown in. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, for putting him forward as our mediator, our, our intercessor, the one who is, who is both in the, the palace of the king with you and yet is like us. Father, we confess that we put so much weight on these other things in life to give us what we need and want, and yet, in Christ, we have everything that we need. Help us to lean on him, to look to him, to be filled up by him. We pray this all in Jesus' name.